everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to catch up with our industry colleagues, talk about the markets, the macro environment, and of course, spend some time sharing views when it comes to portfolio positioning. For today's conversation, as always, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. We're excited to welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned, Russ Kosterich of BlackRock. Russ is a managing director, portfolio manager, and serves as a member of the global allocation team at BlackRock. So, uh, Jason, Russ, it's great to be back with you both. I recall we last spoke as a group here roughly a year ago, so a lot has taken place since then. Of course, a lot of focus on the year ahead, which we'll spend some time on, though. First off, want to welcome you both back and thank you for spending some time with our listeners and clients. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Russ, for joining us today. So a good starting point, perhaps big picture, we're heading into 2024. There's a lot of thought about the trajectory for the U.S. economy. Where do we go from here? Uh, what are your thoughts, Russ, on how the macro environment here in the U.S. might take shape as we make our way into the new year, as well as the prospects for a recession to occur at some point? Well, you know, we're actually fairly constructive on the economy. Uh, you know, we've had a view really since earlier in the year, which at the time was out of consensus. Uh, but I think now has, you know, become uh, probably the baseline that the U.S. economy is doing pretty well uh, and that we're not looking at an imminent recession, probably not in 2024. And I think the reasons are, you know, the, the household sector came into the pandemic in very good shape, tremendous amount of stimulus, a less rate-sensitive economy, uh, and still, you know, a very resilient labor market where there are areas in education, health care, uh, services that they're still missing workers that are keeping the jobs market afloat. So our view is the economy continues to expand, uh, albeit at a somewhat slower pace, because while households are doing pretty well, they are likely to pull back and arguably already are. Inflation keeps coming down. I think the big question, though, is how far down does it go? Uh, our view is you're probably not going to see uh, at least most measures of core inflation revert all the way back to where they were pre-pandemic, which was below 2%. Uh, more likely, they're going to settle in somewhere between 2 and 3%. And our guess is that's going to be good enough for the Fed. If they can get inflation down to that level, uh, you know, there's the prospect for some cuts in the back half of 2024. Uh, Jason, I know our chief investment office here at UBS has been calling for a soft-ish landing as we head into the new year. Can you define that a bit for us and maybe speak to the prospects for any recessionary conditions to take shape in the new year? Uh, well, like Russ, you know, we've been kind of in a soft landing or, or soft-ish landing camp as we define it uh, You know, for you know, much of this year. Uh, and nothing that we've seen thus far, including like the most real-time data on the labor market, on consumer spending for the holidays, you know, gives us kind of reason to, to challenge that assumption at this point in time. So we expect things to slow next year. Like we're already seeing signs of after red-hot summer of growth, you know, the economy is moderating. You know, to be expected after the Fed has hiked rates, you know, 550 basis points. Uh, so we'll see further slowdown in, in, into next year, but also a further decline in inflation. Uh, uh, I would agree with Russ that going to two to three percent, you know, somewhere in that range is probably where inflation will settle down. And the last mile problem is uh, is perhaps a little more safe in terms of getting inflation from like nine percent down to three or four is easy. The last chunk could be hard. I think all indications are that's going, you know, 
pretty well at this point in time. And then as it, that continues, as growth slows, inflation falls, rates will come down. So if I were to sum up in one word, I think next year, at least certainly for the first half of the year of moderation for the U.S. economy after what's been a an unexpectedly you know, strong performance this year. Even even us, who I think we're all more optimistic, you know, we'd say we, we were surprised at you know, getting a 5%, for example, GDP growth in, in the third quarter. Uh, but a point to actually, the, the last thing you mentioned, Russ, was on, you know, with the Fed and the possibility of cuts. You know, right now in the, in the market, you know, there's, I mean, no one believes, and probably no one at the Fed believes they're going to hike again. So that's, you know, that's not controversial. You know, everyone expects they're going to start cutting at some point next year. The market is now more than 50% chance in, in March with, I think, 130 basis points of total cuts priced in for next year. But the real debate, especially over the past week, seems to be, over the possibility of the Fed doing like sort of preemptive cuts, meaning even if the economy is, is doing okay, the labor market is holding up, if inflation allows it, they're going to sort of trim a little bit to make sure they're not getting overly restrictive. I guess how much stock do you guys you know, put into that? Do you think that's a reasonable view? Because it does feel like the market's priced that in and there's scope then for disappointment if that actually doesn't sort of, kind of that framework doesn't materialize. You know, I think that's a great question. And we're, we're definitely in the camp uh, being a little bit more skeptical about that. As you said, the market has pivoted very quickly to this notion that the Fed is going to have the latitude and, and I guess, the desire to cut, uh, you know, as early as the first quarter. And, and this sort of reminds me of the way the market was positioned back in March and April when there was concerns about a banking crisis and First Republic just went under or was going under an SVB. And suddenly you had this very, you know, constructive narrative where the Fed was going to go from the fastest and most aggressive uh, tightening cycle in 40 years it's almost turning on a dime, and I think at one point there were three cuts priced in for the back half of 23, and obviously those never materialized. And you know, my my impression is the market's got into maybe a similar place today, where the Fed is probably going to start to cut in the summer, but you know, the notion that they're going to do a preemptive cut or have the uh, the intent to cut as early as Q1, in an environment where core inflation is still well above their target still have a relatively strong economy, that strikes me as a little bit too optimistic. Well, on that front, in terms of the economy, you think we're sort of aligned in terms of soft landing view. You know, I, I do expect the economy to slow down. When I, you know, track the data and sort of look at where, where we could be wrong, like what could get us wrong in terms of, you know, overestimating the resiliency of the, the consumer, looking at, you know, how you're seeing delinquency rates go up for, for households on the terms of loans on credit cards, auto, things like that. Obviously, default rates will, will be picking up a little bit. It just is, if you were to think if you were going to be wrong on the macro, uh, what part gives you most concern? Is it consumer spending? It could it be businesses, you know, going under, you know, you know, uh, you know, not investing. Like, where, where do you, what is the, the part that kind of gives you most concern about the where you could be wrong on the macro outlook? You know, I, I think I think I would definitely agree with the with the last point you mentioned, which is you know, uh, stress on businesses. And, you know, not, you know, clearly we're not expecting a wave of, of delinquencies uh, or defaults on large companies. I think they've done a great job, one, of navigating this environment, and two, uh, being able to, you know, keep costs in line. Where I would be a little bit more concerned, and it's interesting given how strongly small caps have rallied in recent weeks, is on smaller and private companies. Uh, and, you know, again, I think everyone, myself included, you know, we, we've been incredibly impressed by the resilience of the U.S. economy. You know, all of that said, we know that tightening financial conditions act with a lag. And when you look at, for example, the companies in the Russell 2000, you've got a very high percentage of them, I think north of 40 percent, that are unprofitable. 
Uh, you know, as we have an environment where perhaps, you know, even if the Fed is done, we do have a bit of higher for longer, and the cumulative effect of those tighter financial conditions really start to take an effect, uh, is that where you're going to see some of the pain points in the economy? The other one, which I, I think we're already seeing, and I don't think it's large enough to really disrupt our, our broad view, is, is real estate, particularly commercial real estate, which we still think is uh, going to struggle in an environment of tighter financial conditions and some of the secular changes going on. But I, I do think your, your point about small businesses or business in general uh, is where there might be some pain that maybe is not fully reflected right now. Yeah, we get a lot of, a lot of attention focused on you know, the consumer, you know, areas of stress, uh, you know, even if you follow social media, like you know, talks about depression, people aren't happy about high inflation. But when I look at overall balance sheets and aggregate for households, you're still in very solid shape. And even delinquencies, when you take into account mortgages, which a lot of are financed at very low rates, it's a pretty still very low rate. So I think that's that's it's, it's unlikely to me to be the consumer that rolls over. It's going to be more on the on the business side. Um, yeah, and I think to your point about the you know the the prices and, and sort of the attitude of the consumer. You know, that, that to me is, is pretty interesting because, you know, and, and clearly it's showing up not only uh, in, in the conference numbers, but also in, in polls, uh, political polls, which is, you know, clearly inflation has come down quite a bit, uh, but the level of prices uh, clearly is not. And, you know, depending upon the basket of goods you're talking about, whether it's food, it's rent, it's, it's gasoline, you're, you're significantly above a lot of those categories, 20, 25 percent of where you were pre-pandemic. So I think one of the challenges on the confidence is even with inflation coming down, most people anchor on a price level that they remember, and you know, we're clearly well above that, uh, no matter what basket of goods you're talking about. Well, I know personally, I feel like I'm an old man talking about, well, back in the day, meaning like four years ago, when I would buy something that was $8 for lunch and now it costs $15, I, I feel um, certainly kind of poor as a result. Um, but you know, so we've talked a lot about the U.S. and, and there's been you know, this idea of a U.S. exceptionalism this year. Certainly, you know, if you look at how growth held up in the summer versus where things are in Europe. When I think of the Europe, like the global landscape, it is already, you know, maybe hit sort of a bottom. Like, like I think like European growth is probably scraping along the bottom uh, without a lot of immediate signs of it getting better, but also not necessarily a whole lot worse. So it might be more of next year is a little bit of the U.S. catching down to the rest of the world, but not a significant slowdown kind of globally. Where do you see, from a global perspective, you know, the overall macro outlook and other, you know, kind of relative differences, like if the U.S. has been outperforming this year, do you think on a relative basis, some other area that you think actually looks relatively compelling, just from a pure economic perspective? Yeah, I'd say the only place that we've really kind of identified, and it's, it's as much of an investment opportunity as, as sort of a macro call as Japan. Uh, I think we kind of shared the skepticism about Europe, Japan, you know, uh, China, it's clearly been a huge disappointment this year in terms of the government's willingness to stimulate the economy and you know, the expected snapback after the COVID restrictions. Japan has been the interesting case, and it's probably you know the, one of the more asynchronous uh, developed economies out there. And you know a lot of interest in the stock market rallying. I think part of that is the fact that you're finally getting some normalization in Japanese inflation and you know optimism about the corporate sector. Now, I think the latter, while you know, there, there are some definitely some green shoots. Uh, we've all been down this road before where there's optimism, money flows into the economy, uh, the reforms disappoint, and that money flows back out. But Japan is one place we've been paying increasingly uh, more attention to. And then I said the other one, which is more of a long-term thematic play, is India. 
uh, which again I think is benefiting from a lot of the, the skepticism and the disappointment in China, uh, is a place that you know you're seeing very solid growth. You've got a innovative corporate sector, and there's another place uh, that offers some opportunity. I just wanted to go back to Japan and, and kind of dig a little bit deeper because, as you mentioned, it feels like there's been false starts over the past least decade. Like, you know, after Abe was elected, I think it was like 2011 thereabouts, and Japanese equities had a, you know, almost like a one to two year run where they were about 50%, and that kind of fizzled out. There is, I see some people talking about that this is not just a trade, you know, for Japanese equities, but there's something structural going on. Like after maybe 30 years of struggling to generate inflation, now this actually may take hold. And we're seeing, you know, at the point on the corporate side, some signs of real kind of reform of their kind of their, their behavior in a shareholder friendly way. So when you think about Japan, is this something that you think is, all right, this is the have a run. It could be three months, six months, you know, type of you know, trade as it rallies, or is there something structural going on? And given Japanese equities are not that expensive, this is a multi-year kind of view that we think this could be a, an outperformer. I, I think there is the potential for that. But, you know, I think as you, you point out, you know, we've been down the road before, uh, probably just about 10 years ago. And I think for this to be something other than a trade, for it to be a longer-term theme, you need the reforms on corporate governance, uh, shareholder value to continue, because that's really where you're going to unlock uh, some of that value in Japanese stocks. Now, if it does, I, I do think Japan is interesting. As you say, it, it's a cheap market. And, you know, it's funny, when we do screens for different characteristics around the world, not, not surprisingly, the U.S. scores strong on growth. It scores well on quality. But some of the best value plays uh, we find anywhere in developed markets are in Japan. Now, you know, to avoid that the value trap, I think you need two things. You need the continuation of Japanese uh, corporate governance reforms, and you need the economy to continue to hold in there. Uh, the danger with Japan, in my opinion, is that particularly today, you've got a lot of tourists in that market. Uh, a lot of money managers, a lot of investors pulled out of Japan. There's a tendency to go into Japan when the global economy is doing pretty well, but often you know, that's, that can be, if not fast money, at least not uh, permanent money. So in order for that trade to continue, I do think we need the global economy to have a soft landing in 24, and we need to see you know, some of the, the corporate governance improvements that have given some uh, encouragement to investors, those need to continue. Well, I agree with the kind of the tourism comment. When I look at you know, the topics index, it's up 26% this year, even better than the S&P. It's been for almost six months now, maybe more, an attractive market. I was wondering, like, is the party going to end, you know, relatively soon or actually have kind of a more substantial runway? So, you know, history would suggest be cautious, um, but there is reason that I think maybe something is a little bit different. Um, but a purely selfish perspective, I also hope they don't make significant reforms near term because the yen is so cheap. I, like a lot of people, actually want to be an actual tourist in Japan sometime soon. So, <laughs> so after I visit, then, then, then the yen can rally strongly. Up to that and go up. Yeah, no, it is pretty fascinating. And, you know, again, I mean, you know, it's very well, I think many of our listeners do, that, that that sort of foreign money coming in is so important because unlike the U.S., there's not a huge uh, domestic investor base for equities. So, you know, often the market, you know, lives or dies on the uh, the sentiment of foreign investors. Yeah, that's increasingly true for, I think, a lot of markets other than the U.S. You know, I think it's, you know, you and us, you have to marry. Everyone else, you periodically date. It feels like that's yeah. in simple terms the way it is. Um, which then kind of we pivot from kind of the macro to the markets. We talked of, you know, pretty good outlook for next year. The markets are reflecting that with the S&P up 9% in November. 
Yeah, all, it did close on, uh, you know, last Friday at a, um, you know, year-to-date high. So the kind of the question is, like, where do we go from here? And, and, and you thinking about that allocation, like, is it a, you know, a bit of a pause? Do you think there's, there's could grind hard? How, how are you sort of thinking about navigating the markets, given the moves that we've seen? And, and what seems like a lot of good news is priced in, whether it's the macro data, but also what the Fed will be willing to do. So I think it's, it's helpful, at least for me, to kind of divide into the short and the intermediate term. I think the short term, the market can grind higher, uh, you know, particularly if you get a soft payroll print tomorrow and the bond market continues to rally. You know, we've seen the resumption of this rate beta play. In other words, you know, bidding up areas of the market that are very sensitive to rates, uh, early growth stocks being one example, that just surged, you know, 30, 35 percent off of the October lows. So, you know, given that, given the seasonality, the fact that there's still a lot of cash on the sidelines, I think the market can continue to rally, you know, into January. Then I think it's more interesting, uh, you know, for a couple of reasons. The first one is, we, again, I think we're both in the soft landing camp. So let's say you've got, you know, real growth of one and a half to two percent. Inflation's running two percent. So you've got four percent nominal GDP. That's, that's not a bad environment, but, you know, earnings estimates already were expecting 12 percent earnings growth next year. That, that seems pretty full. So, you know, the question is, can you do better than that? Where do you see some margin improvement? And then the other question I have, which is less about the level of the S&P and more about leadership. And it goes back to a, a point that I think we both made, that even if you are going to have a soft landing, uh, the household sector is likely to pull back. The economy is likely to slow. In a slowing economy, uh, are you going to continue to see leadership, as you have last month, from the more volatile sectors of the market, from small cap? Uh, so that's where I think you might also get another rotation in 24 if we start to see more evidence that the U.S. economic expansion is, is actually moderating. Yeah, I would agree that it also like there's a stage between like now and your end, you know, and, and that's distorted somewhat by like, you know, very low liquidity and people wanting to close up positions for the year, like certain types of investors. What is the outlook for the next, you know, then into early first quarter and then sort of beyond? And I think from, I would agree, like, you know, near term, it feels like the macro environment, it will be and relatively benign. You have a favorable Fed. A lot of money to tend to be put to work, especially at the start of the year. So things kind of go higher. But in a year where we've oscillated between the market kind of embracing hard landing versus soft landing, or, or at least recession soft landing, that while everything is drifting towards soft landing right now, I think there's going to be one more kind of growth scare. You know, as we see some moderation, you never quite know whether is it moderating towards, you know, an okay landing or is it moderating towards a recession? Like, you know, you know, you know in hindsight, you don't necessarily know in real time. But imagine there'll be a period of time, I think in the first quarter, we start getting data that's going to cause people who have, you know, not the highest conviction in, in the soft landing, maybe kind of pull back. I can see the markets pulling back. And at that point, that then wherever we hit the bottom there, that becomes maybe the rotation point where the leadership does change in a more significant way. Like you mentioned, like selling small caps, it's an area that, you know, we've looked at, I think a lot of people are looking at, they look attractively valued. We've seen on days, even in November, like when CPI came up for October, it popped five and a half percent, the Russell 2000. So it tells you it's a bit of like a cold spring. It wants to rally. Uh, but in an environment where, you know, typically you're going into, you know, certainly a slowdown, on maybe a recession, that's not necessarily when small cap outperforms. So I think for us, at least, kind of just staying more quality is, is probably the right approach for the time being until we see or get higher conviction that um, the worst of a kind of growth slowdown, at least is within sight. So that, that's as we go to year end, not de-risk, but sort of lean towards things where we feel like they have a little more conviction that across different scenarios it could perform reasonably well. 
You know, I think we, we definitely agree with a lot of that. And I think our quality bias is something that we've been thinking about. You know, really the way we've been trying to frame it is if you get this slowdown but not a recession, what performs well? And I, I think the point about, you know, where we are in the cycle is important. As you, as you pointed out, small caps generally do well. They rip early cycle. I don't know if I would describe this as early cycle, uh, particularly if we're decelerating off of that sort of sugar high in the third quarter. So what type of stocks generally do well when we are in that moderation? It is quality. It can be GARP. Uh, you know, companies that have earnings consistency, those are some of the themes we're really trying to look into right now. Yeah, the point about the cycle, I think it's, it's a critical for thinking of how markets could play out next year. If, you know, if we get a soft landing, we avoid a, like a recession, um, unemployment rate presumably doesn't rise very much from, from where we are now at 3.9%, but maybe just get a little bit over four, but still by historical standards over the past 30 years, that's quite low. You could have a Fed that's cutting, but cutting rates to, you know, uh, maybe a neutral level, whatever that neutral means, but like say back to like gradually get down to 4%, a little bit less by 2025. That doesn't look typically like a early cycle environment where, you know, uh, you know, rates are still low, unemployment is high, there's excess capacity. So I would wonder then from a market perspective, do people view this as now we are truly not early cycle, not even maybe mid cycle, but something that is perpetually a little bit looking like, into cycles, not around the corner, but it's around the next corner. And if that's the case, are, are, will investors be willing to embrace a real rotation in the marketplace that would go to the typical early cycle leaders, like small cops, like you know cyclicals, uh, like like value, uh, or will they kind of struggle to really consistently outperform? I think there's scope for you know, that kind of trade to, to actually have legs. But that, my concern is that you know if I'm the only one who believes it, then the market doesn't trade that way. So I'm curious, like how would you? How would you think about that if, if we do get that soft line where by, you know, third quarter, fourth quarter of next year, the Fed is starting to cut? Is that a mid-cycle positive 95? Or is it like, you know, 2018, 19, where it's still kind of late cycle and you kind of have to question just how much, you know, the rotation will take place? Yeah, I think that's, a, I think that's the right question. Uh, you know, my own view is it's probably more late cycle. Uh, but again, it may be a very prolonged cycle. And I think this is one of the challenges that, you know, you both remember earlier in the year, people were talking about the yield curve inverted. And, you know, you count 7.4 months and the economy goes into recession, and clearly that didn't happen. And I think one of the reasons is not just the fact that, you know, we have less rate sensitivity in the economy than we did 30 years ago, given the increase in services. It's also just how unusual this recession was and how unusual the recovery was. And the complete divergence between what was happening in the goods sector and what was happening in the services sector, and arguably, We've already had a manufacturing recession. Now we're going to get some moderation in household consumption. So, you know, it's always dangerous and you always get, you know, sort of taken a task for saying this time it's different. But I, I do think the nature of this recession, the fact that it wasn't caused by imbalances, it was not caused by the Fed, it was the pandemic, the nature of the recovery has been so different. And you've had this, you know, strange divergence between parts of the economy that some of the traditional markers about early, mid, and late cycle uh, may not be as good of a guide as they have been in the past. Well, I think it's certainly a strong case to be made that this is, you know, this time is different um, just because of the pandemic. Um, it's a question of how far you want to extrapolate um, and sort of support your own points. You know, we've talked about equities on the fixed income side. You know, you know the quality message we have has been you know quality bonds, quality equities. Uh, and that was certainly a strong case to be made at you know, when the tenure was up around 5%. It felt like a very asymmetric trade that even if rates go higher on a one-year horizon, 
you got they got to go up a lot before you lose any money. And if they go lower, then you can get some pretty good returns, especially if you buy some duration. At a ten-year at four point two percent, obviously some of that juice has been squeezed out of the of the rally. We still think they directly go lower next year on on um, you know the economy is slow. Where are you right now in terms of thinking about given this really rapid kind of movement rates? And tell me, just gets us back to where we were in the middle of the summer. How do you think about sort of duration, kind of you know credit quality? Where where in fixed income would you be allocating right now? Yeah, we've we've closed a lot of our duration underweight uh, in, in global allocation. We're actually running about a third of the year underweight, which is, you know, as close to neutral as it's been for many, many years. And we had been buying a lot of exposure in the front end of the curve and the, the belly of the curve. I agree with you. Some of the juice in that is, is out. And particularly in the front end of the curve, you know, you've got to be a little concerned, as we spoke about earlier, about whether or not some of the optimistic assumptions about a Q1 cut are, are going to manifest. Uh, but that, that aside, I think the one area we're still a little bit concerned about, and it partly explains why we remain a little underweight, is less about the economy and more about the supply, di- uh, supply demand dynamic, particularly for long dated treasuries. And, you know, we all know the fiscal situation. It's unlikely to get better anytime soon. The amount of supply is enormous, you know, north of $2 trillion at a time when some of the buyers are, are, pu- are pulling back, whether it's central banks, the Chinese, uh, regional banks in the U.S. And in that environment, you know, it seems that the term premium, you know, the premium you get for those, those long-dated assets could still be wider. So irrespective of some of the conversation about the economy and inflation, uh, we're still a little bit cautious about where the long end of the curve trades and, and when you get to a point of, of relative value. So at this point, we just have a few moments remaining. I do want to gather final thoughts, takeaways before we wrap up. So Jason will, of course, allow Russ the final word. So I'll go to you. Anything you would like to reinforce? Anything in the way of final thoughts, takeaways you would like to leave for our listeners? Well, a couple of points. One is that, well, there's a lot of optimism being priced in the markets right now. I think if we do zoom out to think about how this whole year has played out, it has been, you know, kind of a year of inflections, you know, in terms of the market believing and embracing different sort of macro narratives and outcomes. It is very much on the soft landing camp right now in terms of market pricing. Until we actually can be definitively say that's the outcome, I think there's probably at least one more turn, and investors should be cautious you know, of that. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, I think a little bit more of the same, even though right now things look quite good and we could kind of grind higher to early next year, but still not get defensive. But as I kind of mentioned, uh, you know, kind of tilt towards quality. Make sure you're balanced and, and rebalance your portfolio and diversified. I think the past two months have illustrated that. If you lean too much in one direction, when things move, they move very quickly. You have to have kind of exposure across different asset classes, including things that we not tactically like, but like your know, small caps are still part of the core portfolio. So I say going into you know, next year, it's be diversified and lean towards you know, quality. There will be a, probably a, a clear market rotation at some point next year, but not necessarily at the, right at the start. I would agree with a lot of what Jason said. I, I think the quality theme is going to be important in the context of a slowing economy. Uh, I do think you can still get more gains from equities, but you do need to be selective. Uh, and that also implies, you know, thinking about how you're managing your equity risk. You know, one of the real challenges the last few years has been bonds have been much less reliable as a hedge. And we've seen that this year, various rotations where bonds worked as they did in the spring, less so in the fall. So we're still thinking very dynamically about how do you manage the portfolio, how do you manage the risk, uh, and that probably is, you know, making more tactical adjustments than perhaps you needed to do last decade 
where a very simple 60-40 allocation you know, produced stellar returns year after year. In this environment with these changes in the narrative, my, uh, my final thought would be to be a bit more tactical in adjusting those exposures. Russ, Jason, thank you both for dropping by How Should I Be Positioned, spending some time with our listeners, our clients, very wide-ranging, productive conversation today. You shared a lot of insights with our listeners, so do again want to thank you both, wish you both happy holidays, and I look forward to regrouping with our discussion in the new year. Thank you. Thank you, and happy holidays, Russ. Good success in 2024. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.